Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you'll turn there with me as we continue our study through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Last time we finished through the remainder of chapter 3, we continue on in chapter 4 tonight where Solomon has been sort of giving to us this spirit-inspired, we might say, research paper as he seems to have done this experimentation with all the resources and finances and unlimited power and access he had to indulge a little bit of everything that exists under the sun and how Solomon, in making that pursuit, gives to us this record in Ecclesiastes, expressing to us how it was such a struggle to find meaning and purpose and anything on this earth when you exclude God from the process. And remember last time he talked about how God has put eternity into the hearts of men because that is the one thing alone that can allow us to find any sense of meaning or fulfillment and purpose. And anything else that we explore or indulge, and this is sort of Solomon's record of that. Remember he said in chapter 2, anything that my eyes saw, I didn't withhold. Anything I desired, I pursued, I indulged. And so whether it was the pursuit of more knowledge and deeper learning and, and having a greater understanding of things, or whether it was the pursuit of just the party life and enjoyment and entertainment and feasting and indulging alcohol, or whether it was the pursuit of pleasure in a sexual sense of, again, remember Solomon was the one who, the Bible tells us, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. So Solomon pretty much explored everything he could, and that on to that, all of the wealth and the resources at his disposal, the things that he could buy. He built buildings and gardens and zoos, and I mean, this man brought in entertainment uh, from all over the world to try and gratify himself in every form and fashion. And remember this repeated refrain, he kept saying, all of this is just vanity. It's just emptiness. All of these things... They're just meaningless in and of themselves. They don't completely satisfy. They never fulfill. And if you disconnect any of those things from an awareness of God or a relationship from God, uh, it makes life under the sun completely just vain. And there's no purpose to it. There's no existence uh, to anything that has really value when you exclude God from the process. You know, thankfully, as those who know the Lord, we recognize really what the end of the book's going to tell us, where Solomon ultimately says, look, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, know God, live in reverence of God, live in respect of God, walk with him, have a relationship with him, and honor his word, and in that you will find purpose. In that you'll find fulfillment and all the other things that we may engage in on our time on this earth. So Solomon goes on here in chapter 4 as he continues to take this, again, research and evaluation. He's kind of doing this exploration and bringing these things to our attention. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And again, there's that repeated phrase, under the sun. The idea is everything on the horizontal, uh, everything under the sun that is, that's temporal, that's on this earth. Again, that's the problem. So many people only take life into consideration under the sun. They never look beyond uh, the atmosphere and realize that there's an eternal dimension and there's an eternal God. And, and he's simply referring to all of these things he sees happening on the earth 
And here he refers to when he took consideration of all the oppression that happens and is done under the sun. And oppression, of course, is a reference to man manipulating or treating wrongly someone else by, you know, just in a sense, abusing their power to take advantage of someone else, to harm someone else, the powerful manipulating the weak, or really in any matter, just someone treating unkindly someone else and holding them back or taking advantage of them. And he says, I saw the oppression and look, he says, verse one, the tears of the oppressed, referring to the sorrow of those who are being oppressed, those who are being cruelly mistreated, the grief it brings to them, the tears of sadness from the hurt and the wounds that are brought into our lives when we're cruelly treated by other people, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. So what he's referring to here, in a sense, is just reflecting upon really just how horribly we treat each other as mankind. And boy, in a world where we have, in a sense, brought about through Adam's failure and sin entered into the world through one man, and now sin and death has spread to all men, and we're all therefore broken people with a sinful bent, and when that is left unchecked by the power of the Holy Spirit and a relationship with God, it is absolutely sometimes astonishing how horribly human beings will treat one another. The ways that we will oppress one another and manipulate one another and take advantage of people and the cruel, abusive, horrible things that humanity does to one another. I mean, you cannot go through a day or listen to any news report one day and not see the constant cruelty that happens under the sun the way that mankind treat one another. And the many people who have tears running down their face even tonight, whether it's because of present hurts of something that just happened in their life, or people to this day still who have tears running down their faces because of horrible things that have happened in their past, some cruel things, some painful experience that they've gone through. And, and, and perhaps Solomon here, as he's watching this again, just seeing how vain and how horrible this is, he kind of sinks into a pretty low spot in what he says in these next few statements. Look what he says. Therefore, seeing how horrible people treat one another, he says, I praised the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. In other words, he said, you know what? I thought the people who actually have it the best right now are the people who've already died because they've escaped all the pain and the misery and the problems that are brought about because of how horribly we oppress and treat each other as mankind. Now, in one sense, you can sense Solomon there kind of somewhat being rather despondent and sarcastic. I mean, certainly that is a very foolish statement in one sense, because if someone dies apart from the Lord, the torment doesn't go away. It intensifies, right? Because the Bible says that those whose names are not written in the book of life and don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ end up being cast into the lake of fire where the fire is not quenched, where you know the, the, the worm dieth not, and there is torment perpetually forever and ever and ever. And so to say that it's better to be dead rather than to be alive, in one sense, Solomon's saying at least when we die, we finally escape the hardships of this world and the mistreatment among humanity. 
but that also drastically depends upon where you end up after you depart. Because if you depart to go and be with the Lord, and we understand that from a New Testament sense, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord as a believer, and then, yes, we do escape the pain and the tears. And Revelation tells us that one of the glorious things of heaven is that it tells us in Revelation, and imagine this, almighty, all-powerful God, it says that he wipes every tear from our eyes. And there's no more pain or sorrow or sickness or suffering and no more death. And that would be one of the joyous things of heaven. And what an incredible thing. How as human beings, we cause, as he describes here, we cause people to have tears, as he says in verse 1, running down their faces because of the hard and painful things we do to each other. And one of the glorious things is when we go to heaven, God in his loving kindness he wipes away all the tears and brings a measure of comfort and compassion to the lives of those who've entered into his presence, but those who've departed without him. Uh, life is certainly much worse for them. But Solomon here, just again, so disgusted with the way humanity treats one another. You know, it's interesting that as he says there in verse 1 as well, they have no comforter, they have no comforter. Uh, that, the sad thing is, apart from the Lord, that is true. But one of the wonderful things that we know as God's people is that the Bible tells us in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, in our hardships, so that we then are able to comfort others around us. Jesus even referred to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. That was one of his titles that he's present to help us when we go through painful things and hardships. But Solomon here saying, man, it'd be better to be dead, I think, sometimes than to have to live with the horrible things that we do to each other. And then he goes all the way, verse 3, to sink so far as to say, yet better than both is he who never existed or he who has not seen the evil works that done under the sun. So he says, perhaps the greatest thing is to just never have had to live on this earth to never have had to exist whatsoever. Again, pretty low and depresso mentality there for Solomon uh, in that moment. Verse 4, he says, again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work that man is envied by his neighbor, and this also is, there's our word again, vanity, which speaks of meaningless, empty, vain. This also is an empty vain thing. It's like grasping for the wind. Again, the idea is trying to attain something and just it keeps slipping through your fingers. You, you strive to attain. Nobody can grab hold of the wind. You can try and try and try. And every time you do, you come up empty handed. And here again, he's describing another one of these empty, meaningless experiences that we often get caught up in. And here in some ways, I think he starts to picture, and we'll see as we go on, almost kind of the, you know, the dynamic of, let's say, the, the rat race of, of life and human existence. He describes here the person who toils and works hard. In other words, say, okay, maybe the purpose of life is to be productive. And, and I'm going to use my skills, and I'm going to do what I can to achieve and to advance, and I'm going to use the skills that I have and every skillful work and accomplish something, and I'll start to experience some success. And Solomon says, I found that's pretty empty as well, because when you use your skills and you work hard and you start to do well for yourself and you start to succeed, you just make a whole bunch of people hate you more. <laughs> that's what he's saying there. He says, because I see when that man works skillfully, he ends up being envied by all of his neighbors. And you know how that works. You start to do well for yourself. A person starts prospering and succeeding, and, and they're actually getting somewhere. And then what happens? Oh, man, what a jerk. 
Why's he got to get the promotion? How come he's all successful now? And, and then all of a sudden people are, because human beings are what? We're so selfishly competitive, we despise seeing someone else do better. And because of our selfish bent, we struggle and we wrestle with envy and, and a competitive nature in an unhealthy way where you start to do good for yourself, Solomon says, and you may just start to enjoy it like, wow, this, yeah, I'm starting to get somewhere. And then all of a sudden you find all these people are mad at you and frustrated because they're, they're envious that you're starting to do well and they're jealous really of your prosperity. So he goes to the other end, verse five. He says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now, here he kind of goes to the opposite end of the spectrum where, and here he describes this person is a fool, and this is very fitting and much like all the Proverbs that we saw as we just recently went through our study of Proverbs, how one of the clear characterizing marks of foolishness is laziness, is lack of productivity. And here he describes the fool who folds his hands, and the idea there, rather than using their hands, like the prior verse, to do productive things, to, to use your hands, to do something skillful, and to work, and to achieve, and to acquire things for yourself responsibly, here he pictures the person who, in, a, in an attitude of laziness, in an, in an unproductive way, they basically are doing nothing. They're just sitting there with their hands folded, and they're accomplishing nothing, and they're very irresponsible. And he says there, the fool folding his hands is just consuming his own flesh. The picture there, consuming one's flesh, the idea is it's a self-destructive tendency. And again, this is what the Bible is indicating here, that inactivity and basically doing nothing with your life, God would say, that's just a waste of human life. We weren't put on this planet to just sit around and be unproductive. Adam, even in the Garden of Eden, in a paradise existence, before any sin entered the world, it was just him and God, perfect paradise, and God gave Adam a garden to tend and to keep. In other words, he had something productive to do every day. He didn't just sit around, sunbathe, fold his hands, have a good time. He did something productive. He was accomplishing things. He was achieving things. He was generating what he needed in a self-productive way, providing for his necessities and so forth. And again, that is something God has designed and a part of the way that God's created us to be productive. Jesus himself said that even though we should be watching and waiting and expecting for him to return, Jesus also said, but occupy until I come. Don't become so entangled with the affairs of this world that you're distracted or not looking for the return of the Lord. But Jesus also said that we should be staying occupied until he comes, that, that, that we're believing the Lord could come in any moment, but that we're living in a way like he may not be coming back for a real long time, that we're staying occupied, we're being productive, we're doing what we responsibly should. And the picture here seems to be the most foolish option of all is to just kind of shrink back into a lazy, unproductive state. And, and that mindset where the fool, he says, folds his hands, and the reason it's a foolish mindset is it makes a person not only live in a self-destructive way, but it kind of breeds in the mind of a human being kind of just like a consumer mindset where you basically feel like that it's okay to function on this earth just living like a consumer, expecting that others should take care of you and supply for you and provide for you and they do all the work and you have an entitlement mentality and just take, 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 take. And God says, that's horrible. 
That's a bad idea. That's a foolish mindset. You know, the Bible tells us that we should live responsible. Each one should bear his own burden. The Bible tells us that we should each seek to do something productive and be self-sufficient human beings, having not only what we need for ourselves, but Ephesians 4 says, redemptively, work isn't just providing for our own necessities. It's also that we then may have something even to share and to generously help and give to others. So here he gives to this kind of balance to the other side that just doing nothing is not wise either. And then he pictures the perfect balance, if you would, somewhat in verse 6, where he says better, that is better than doing this or better than doing that. He says better, verse 6, a handful with quietness. The picture there is with peace, with contentment. Better to just have a handful with quietness and contentedness and satisfaction, then both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So what he's describing there in verse six, the ideal is to find balance, to find moderation, to realize that life is not all about work and it shouldn't be just work, 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 and he's gonna talk about in our next verses and miss all the important valuable things of human life and human existence. But he says it's also about not doing anything. It's about doing what is sufficient. Again, living life in balance, living life in moderation. He says it's better to just have one handful and be content and have peace and quiet and be satisfied and to understand contentment than to have both hands full and still say, I need another hand. I need a little bit more. He said it'd be better to have less and be content than to have twice as much and be discontent and always grasping and striving and always feeling like that we need more. And, and that's a meaningless existence if all we are ever doing as human beings is always trying to grasp for the next thing, grab the next thing. We've already got both hands full and we wanna throw what we got out and grab the next thing. And, and, and always trying to, and he says, that's gonna end up be a very meaningless existence because we're never gonna find fulfillment or rest in doing that. We'll just continue to wear ourselves out. Again, Paul talks about that idea in the New Testament when he writes to Timothy, and he talks about how godliness with contentment is great gain. And he says, that's how you can tell when you're walking with God and you're starting to gain ground, when you can find contentment in God. And he says, that's great gain, where you can be content with your relationship with God and having basic necessities. Again, he says in that passage, we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out. And so here, this is that picture of just the balance of living in moderation and contentment. Verse seven, he says, then I returned and saw vanity, emptiness under the sun. There is, verse eight, one alone without a companion. He has neither son nor brother, so no family, no children, no, no relatives. The picture is here, someone who's kind of just living an isolated life, a very independent spirit, kind of a lone ranger, if you would. Yet there is no end to all of his labors. The picture here, we might write in what we often refer to as like a, a workaholic, where life is all about work. Sun up, sun down, seven days a week. Life is about work, 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 get more, work, work a little more, get more. This is the picture of, of this man that Solomon's describing now. There is no end to all his labors, but look what he says. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. So he's got riches, but he's still not satisfied, right? Is that old adage, 
where they asked wealthy people before, how much is enough? Just a little bit more, right? And, and, and that's, that's the human tendency. And it's amazing, whether it's J.D. Rockefeller or others, you know, just do a little research, some of the people who've been some of the wealthiest human beings on the planet and how they struggled with constant dissatisfaction no matter how much wealth they acquired. And here he describes this person who there's no end to their labors. They're never satisfied no matter how much wealth they acquire. But look what he says, verse 8, but he never stops to ask what? For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave, a severe misfortune. What he's describing here in verse 7 and 8 is that workaholic kind of mentality and lifestyle of someone who has an inclination towards being an overachiever in the area of work just a very driven person, almost to the point where they find gratification in work and achievement and accomplishments and in such a way whereby there's never an end to their labors. In other words, rather than ever at times pausing and enjoying life some and indulging relationships with people and having connection with other human beings and some form of leisure and rest, Instead, they are overly driven in excess to an unhealthy way where they're driven by constant work, always trying to, again, keep up with the rat race, climb the ladder, get more money, you know, higher status financially, so they're work, 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 and yet they're never satisfied. But he says, here that person finds themselves never stopping to ask, wait a minute, here I am working all these hours, accruing all this stuff, and I don't even have a single person in my life to share it with. I don't have a single family member to enjoy it with or to, to leave it to because I've been so busy working, I've neglected everything else that matters in life, which is people and relationships and things that have in some ways a much higher value than just money and work and achievement. And this can be a grave mistake, a grave misfortune where sometimes people become so consumed with working and chasing money that they invest their whole life in work and success and career and money and acquiring stuff for themselves. And in the meantime, they disregard all the other valuable things that they should be paying attention to, which is like having relationships with people and enjoying love and, and interaction with others the way God's intended us to. And again, here they have everything material, but they're completely empty because they're totally lonely. And God says that's a, a bad place to go, a, a meaningless existence and a grave, severe misfortune when someone has tons of stuff, but they're completely lonely and empty because of the path that they've taken and didn't even realize what they were doing. Now, verses 9 through 12, he describes the opposite of that, really, which is a picture of the value of having human relationships. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly 
broken. So in our prior verse, verse 8, he talks about the person who is alone without a companion and the serious grave misfortune that way of life is. And now in verses 9 through 12, he describes the value and the importance of doing life together in relationship with another person or with other people, having companions in our life, having friendships, having camaraderie, having a marriage partner, however that may flesh itself out. It doesn't have to be alone exclusively in a marriage relationship. Many times we allude to these verses regarding the marriage relationship, and I think they're certainly very fitting, and we can touch upon that. But the idea there is whether it's friendship, whether it's a brother in Christ, a sister in the Lord, that we take you know, to heart the importance that God has intended us to live not isolated, independent, lonely lives, but that God intends us and has built us for relationship. He's built us to live in a shared existence with other people, to do life in community, to be able to have a companion or two or three in our life where we are able to both help and support one another. And he says it is better to be in healthy relationship with others than to navigate life all alone. Always going to be better than trying to do the Lone Ranger thing. And sometimes, again, we may have a more independent spirit. It may actually take initiative. It may take actually being intentional to build relationships into our lives, but it's valuable. And here God tries to emphasize that and how empty it is and dangerous it is to do life alone. But look at some of the benefits, he says, of doing life in partnership with another person. He says, verse 9, first of all, two are better than one. Now that says it right there. God says, here's what's better, two. Two are better than one. Right from the very beginning, God created Adam. It was God and Adam. Adam was in a perfect existence. There was nothing flawed in Adam, but yet in Adam and having even a relationship with God and everything available to him, God said, it's what? Not good that man should be what? Alone. I'm going to make a helper that's comparable to him. Human companionship, human partnership, because Adam will do better with a spouse as God brought Eve to Adam. The purpose in that was that as she brought the complementary things into Adam's life, she was a comparable helper. She was a completer as she brought distinctions and differences, not only just male and female, but by just being a different human being by design. She brought completion to Adam, and basically Adam became a better individual, and they did better together in partnership than they would have if they lived life independently alone. And God understood that. And one of the basis and reason why God instituted the marriage relationship was for that very purpose of living life in partnership and having a shared experience with another person and how we do better together with another than doing an isolated, independent pursuit of our life. So here he says two are better than one. So whether it's in marriage, whether it's in friendship, think of it, even Jesus sent out the disciples. How did he send them out? Two by two. He didn't send them out independently to do ministry. He sent them out in pairs. And so again, there's always great value. And here he mentions one of the benefits of relationship, partnership, friendship. He says, verse 9, 
because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, what he's saying is, here's one of the reasons why having friendship, partnership, someone working with you is good, because he says two people can get twice as much work done as one person can. Or two people can do twice as good of a job, and there will be a greater reward in return on their work if they work together in partnership. You know, I remember when I was a pastor in Calvary Chapel of York for the 13 years that I was there, uh, the guy that I had on, on staff with me, my associate pastor, I mean, he was incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, and I'm I remember one time he, uh, and this is when he was actually still single too, he wasn't married, his wife would have spoken some common sense into him, but this was before he was married. He came into church one morning and he had his, his, like a, a, a wound on his forehead, his forehead was split open. I said, dude, wh- what happened to your forehead? And he said, I was hanging drywall. And I said, hanging drywall? How'd you split your head open hanging drywall? And he said, well, I was hanging a four by, she- four by eight sheet over my head and I was holding it up and at the same time I was <laughs> trying to, and I'm like, what were you thinking, man? You didn't like think you didn't call somebody in the church. Could you hold up a four by eight sheet of drywall in the ceiling? Instead, he was trying to jack two by fours up and hold it with one hand. And you know, and again, we have this tendency as human beings that we try and take on projects, do things alone sometimes. And God says, look, two of you could do a much better job. One guy can hold the drywall; the other eye can put in the screws in the drywall. Two people putting their hands to something. Two people's minds. Hey, how about we try it this way? No, what about, the, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that's a little better idea. So he says, look, one of the main reasons two are better than one is you become way more productive when you work in partnership with another person. You have two ideas, two sets of strength, two sets of skills, talent. And so whether it's a friendship or just a partnership in marriage relationship, we tend to be much better and accomplish much more when we do life together with our spouse. There's a greater reward as we labor together in life and the things of the Lord. So we're more productive with a second person helping us. He also says, verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him as alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. So here he speaks of another benefit of partnership or companionship is that it also provides help and support in both times of failure as well as in times of difficulty. I think either could be pictured there. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Sometimes we fall in the sense of when we fail, we stumble. And when we fail or stumble in life or make a mistake or we really trip and and hit hard and get wounded and and find ourselves embarrassed and humiliated and discouraged. And then the lying voice of the devil is saying, why don't you just lay there and die? Why don't you just, I can't believe you fell like that. And the discouragement and the heartache and the guilt and all the struggle of when we fall, trying to, you know, kind of sense, get ourselves back up and start to walk with the Lord again. And he says, one of the benefits of when you fall, if you have a companion, a brother, a sister, a comrade, a friend, a spouse, when you fall, he says, your companion's there and they can help lift you back up. And they can help get you back on your feet again. He says, but woe to him who's alone when he falls. 
It's a tough thing when you're all alone and you fall and you don't have someone there to encourage you, to speak words of compassion and to speak into your life to help you. He says to have no one to help him up. So when we fail, it's great to have a companion to support us and help us. And also just in times of difficulty, right? Maybe it's not failure, but maybe we just go through a real hard, difficult time and we kind of, you know, we, we, we experience a failure or a setback or some hardship and it's just a difficult time. Same thing, you know, so much more wonderful that when you go through a hard or difficult time to have somebody there who's holding you up, whether they're lifting you up in prayer or just there to support you and, and stand by you. And he says, much better, you have that support and help. Thirdly, he mentions in verse 11, also if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And again, understanding the, the Mideastern climate there in the Palestinian area, as they would many of the times out in the, you know, the desert and wilderness areas, it was very hot during the day, and then there could be a drastic shift in the temperature in the evenings. And if you were out you know, and about doing things and all of a sudden that temperature change happened, it may literally be your survival whether you're going to lay down next to someone who else also has body heat to generate body heat to keep you alive. It may literally be a matter of life or death in that situation. So here the picture is, no doubt in verse 11, that having companionship or partnership, it helps us to sustain one another. And to comfort one another, because if you are freezing cold, to have someone to lie next to you would be a great comfort. And sometimes that's one of the greatest values in relationship is you have somebody to comfort you, somebody to provide comfort in your life or to sustain you in times when you really need the strength or what another person supplies when you yourself don't have what's sufficient to be able to draw what another can supply can be an invaluable, invaluable resource and help. And then verse 12, he mentions also, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. So there, another benefit of companionship or partnership, we might say, is protection, preservation. It provides safety to us. It provides security to our lives. We might say, as we look at verse 12, it means that you have somebody in your life that always has your back. And that's the idea there. He says one person may be overpowered, but two people, because they can stand back to back, they can help protect one another, and they can help provide safety and security to each other by watching out for one another. And together, standing unified to resist against an enemy or someone that may come against them. And, and, and there's a wonderful benefit of preservation and protection by having a relationship with a friend or a partner or a spouse, and I think certainly that's one of the greatest advantageous things that comes in a marriage relationship, is to have a marriage relationship, one of the greatest values it brings in is it serves a tremendous way to protect us and to preserve us. And particularly, think about it, isn't it interesting? He says there, verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, he then says, but two can withstand him. Who's him? I don't know, but perhaps it's the devil. Certainly, that's one way that's very applicable because when spiritual warfare happens and the attack of the devil and he's trying to launch you know, an attack against our life and bring temptation to sin or to attack us in any form or way that the devil does, sometimes we may not be able to stand on our own, but to be able to stand together with our spouse or to join together in partnership with another brother in Christ or sister in the Lord and to pray together and to stand unified. Maybe one might be overpowered by the devil, 
but two may be able to very well withstand him and to be able to keep that person safe from being overcome and being destroyed. And I think it's a very wonderful thing when that happens, that safety that comes. And he describes, interesting, look at the end of verse 12, how a threefold cord, he says, is not quickly broken. You know, they say, I'm not a rope specialist, so you can Google and I'll probably be wrong, but they say that when you take two strands, whether it's string, rope, any form like that, and you weave them together, obviously weaving two strands together makes more strength than one, but they say that when you add a third strand into a two-strand rope or, or, or kind of, you know, something of that nature, that it exponentially increases the strength by just that third kind of unifying cord that runs down through the middle. Now, whether that is true or not, again, I'm not a boat or a nautical guy, so it could be completely a bad analogy right now. But it is a very beautiful picture, no doubt, of that third strand being the Lord, right? Two lives unified in companionship, partnership, friendship, whether it's two brothers in the Lord, two sisters in the Lord, two comrades, two partners, or whether it's in the marriage relationship where two become one flesh and how in marriage that threefold cord can be the husband and the wife and then having the Lord that's the unifying strand among them, holding them together, keeping their marriage together, keeping their marriage strong. And I'll tell you, that in and of itself is one of the most powerful strengthening things in a marriage that will resist and withstand the attacks of the devil to destroy a marriage, to ruin a marriage. You know, these were actually the verses. My wife and I, when we you know, got married over 28 years ago. Uh, I didn't do much of all the decorating stuff, but I do remember that that verse was on our little pretty napkin thingies. And I remember why it was on there. And, and I can tell you, I'm very grateful and thankful. You know, I've had 28 plus wonderful years of marriage. My wife's maybe had two or three, I don't know, but um, I, I, I hope she's had almost as many. But I can tell you this, the Lord being at the center of our marriage is what has kept our marriage strong. It's what's kept our marriage intact, having the Lord at the center. You know, I say to this day still, and again, we've been together almost three decades now, to this day still, we have two things in common, the Lord and three children, and now two grandchildren, so I guess we've added two more. But th that, that's it. We're very distinctively different, not just male and female, but in every way distinct. But the Lord at the center of our marriage has been that strengthening, unifying thing. No better way to build a relationship. You put the Lord in the center of a relationship, that is the key to keep that relationship strong. Again, the bonds we have, whether it's with our spouses or our relationships or friendships with people, in the family of God, where the Lord is at the center of a relationship, it's amazing how strong those friendships are. It's amazing how tight those bonds of camaraderie are, the things that we'll do for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. The benefit of partnership. Verse 13, he says, Better a poor and a wise youth than an old and a foolish king who will be admonished no more. So better, he says here, to be or to have a young person, he describes, from, let's say, a lowly status, 
and one who, again, because they're young and from a lowly status, they have very little experience because they're a youth, but he says better to be or have a young person from a low status with little experience, but yet who is very wise in their reasoning and very wise in the way they handle their affairs than to have, he says, better to have that than to have an old and foolish king who won't be admonished or listen to people anymore in his life because he's become so stubborn and set in his ways and he doesn't want to listen to anyone and thinks that he knows everything. He says, it would be better to have that young, inexperienced, teachable youth who's wise, who's depending upon the wisdom of God than to have an older, ultra-experienced king with lots of experience who's become foolish in their ways, and one of the biggest ways they become foolish in their ways is they won't let anybody admonish them anymore. I'm old now, you're never going to tell me what to do because I'm the old guy now. And the Bible says, be better to take the young guy that knows nothing, that's teachable, because that's wise, than all the experience under the sun, but someone who never wants to listen to others, kind of an old, stubborn king, he says, who won't be admonished anymore, he won't listen, he's never open to hearing advice or input or even being challenged for his errors, God would say. Verse 14, for he comes out of prison. Now here it seems he's kind of referring back to that poor and wise youth. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. So the picture there is how God can very quickly exalt those who start out at a lowly and a poor status. He describes this lowly, poor youth who gets exalted. Notice he comes out of prison. Now, that's a bad background. (laughs) He's come out of prison, so he's got a tough background there. But though he has a poor start in life, his background does not hinder God from being able to exalt him. It says that God takes him out of prison and makes him a king. And God has a wonderful way to do that. God is a way to take lives, some of our lives, and take someone with a really bad start and exalt them to do some really awesome and incredible things. Isn't this exactly what God did with Joseph? Remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was in the prison cell, and in one day he went from being in a prison cell. He was there unjustly, but in one day God brought him from a prison cell to the palace, and he took over a place of rulership, and God can do that. God can take a really bad start and a really low status, and if God wants to at any moment, he can take a humble heart and he can exalt them to a place of really wonderful prominence and great influence and turn the tide in our lives rather quickly. He says, verse 15, I saw all the living who walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. Now here the picture is the the, the one youth came out of prison, became the king, But now, like every king, right, what happens with leaders? All leaders are replaceable. So now we have another king coming to power, the second youth, who now stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over he was made king. So his popularity really flourished. He he became the, the greatest king, better even than the prior king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also, Solomon says, is vanity, emptiness, and grasping as the wind. So what he pictures there, verse 15 and 16, is how in time, right, like I said, everybody gets replaced in time. If there's one thing that's true about every one of our lives, no matter who we are, what God does in our life, through our life, it's this, we're replaceable. We're replaceable. 
right? God moves on ministers, but God always continues his ministry. And so whether it's in a spiritual sense through ministry, whether it's in a political sense, right? Every four years, the thing we love about is every four years, we get a chance to do what? Let's try and replace somebody. And you got one whole part of the country is trying to replace somebody, and the whole other part of the country is trying to hang on to somebody. And even if you get them for a full eight years, they still get replaced even after eight years, right? People are replaceable, kings, rulers. And so here he describes how this next youth comes up, comes to power, and everybody is super excited. There's no end of all the people over whom they were made king. The idea is the crowds are rushing in, the popularity. Man, this guy's even better than the other young guy. I mean, this guy is in all his popularities excelling, but notice it says, yet those who come up afterward, the next generation, they don't rejoice in him. And the idea is they say, you know what? Ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting tired of this guy too. I just, I, I got issues with this guy too. And what he's just describing here, how is not only is everybody replaceable, but popularity, folks, with people, it does not last. It doesn't last long. Our novelty as human beings wears off real quick. Sometimes it happens in relationships. You are the greatest thing since sliced bread. The first three months they know you. And then all of a sudden, all the excitement goes away. And the same thing happens with leaders and everything. Oh, this new leader, he's great, he's fantastic, he's awesome. And then eventually people have issues with that person, with that leader. And it just becomes the same thing. They don't rejoice and celebrate anymore. Popularity dies quickly. So it's empty to try and retain popularity because you're never going to keep it. You're never going to hold on to it long term. Let's look at just a few verses in chapter 5, and we'll conclude our time there. A few more moments here. He says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give, he says, the sacrifice of fools for they don't know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So Solomon here shifts gears now, and he starts to talk about our worship lives, and he says to us, notice, walk prudently. Again, remember the word prudent from our study in Proverbs means to think beyond the present moment. To be a prudent person speaks of that you think about beyond this moment, you think about tomorrow, next week, next you're, that you're looking ahead, you have foresight. So you make decisions now or you behave in a way currently because you're always recognizing what happens in the moment connects to the next moment. What happens today connects to the next day, to next week, to next month. So here he says, when you go to the house of God, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near. Now, now when we go to the house of God, who are we drawing near to? The God of the house, right? The Bible says if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. We go to the house of God, not for a religious routine or observance. We should go for God. We're going for God's presence. I, I hope if you came to church tonight, and I hope when you go to the house of God for meetings that you don't go to just punch a religious duty card, but that you truly come to the house of God because you believe that, that there is a God of the house. And I'm going there because I want to meet with God, not see my Christian friends, 
not see a great Christian entertainment experience with lights and smoke and cameras, and man, that was awesome tonight, or that was awesome this morning, but that we're going predominantly, drawing near to meet with God, and that the attraction is God's presence. And this is why he says here, when you go to the house of God, walk prudently, reverently, and draw near, look what he says, to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools who don't know that they're doing evil. Imagine that, going to the house of God and not even knowing that what you're doing is kind of evil and displeasing God. So what he's describing here in verse 1 is that we should approach God's house with a prepared attitude, ready to be receptive, ready to be responsive to God. That's what he's describing. Go to God's house with an attitude of receptivity that we're going, wanting to be responsive to God because his presence is there and we want to meet with him and we want to respond to what he's doing and particularly that we want to respond to what God's saying to us. Do you see what he says in verse 1? Look at it. He says, draw near to hear. Draw near to hear. Draw near to God when you go to God's house saying, God, I'm going to spend time with you and I believe your presence is among us. And I believe you're a God who speaks. And like Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. And Lord, we're going to open your word. And I believe, God, that your spirit speaks through what your spirit has spoken in the word of God. So God, I want to hear something. And that we come to God's house believing and expecting God has something to say to us. And looking for that thing that God wants to say to us and to communicate to us through the word of God, through a time of prayer, through the music, through the fellowship, even the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating as we're talking to another brother or sister and maybe a prophetic word comes through their mouth and it was what we needed to hear that gets us through the rest of our week or gives us counsel or instruction. And again, the thing here is guarding against the foolish error that we can commit sometimes of kind of coming to God's house not prepared and almost coming with sort of like a meaningless religious routine. Where it's what I do. I'm a, I'm a Christian. And this is what we're supposed to do as Christians. And, and the, the good ones, they, they come Wednesday too. The other ones, yeah, they, they just listen to the podcast. And if you listen to the podcast, I'm making you a joke. So forgive me in advance before you email me. Right? But, but we can, we can kind of, and look, they're good routines. My life is very routine. I live Sunday to Wednesday, Sunday to Wednesday, Sunday to Wednesday. I just, and lots of crazy stuff happens between there, but I, that's what I do. I live between teaching Sunday, teaching Wednesday, teaching Sunday, te and then other teachings and counseling and all the other stuff. That, it's a good routine, but it can become a routine. And he says, don't let it become just meaningless, rote routine where you're not expectant, you're not responsive. It's just mindless spiritual activity. He says, come with a heart to want to hear what God has to say, drawing near, God, what do you want to say to me? And I think that's so crucial because here's the thing. We have to remember, if we're truly in God's presence, think of really how rude it honestly is of me or is of you if we're in God's presence and we're basically just like kind of ignoring God like we're disinterested. Right? Kind of the picture that comes to my mind as I was preparing today came to my mind of kind of like, and, and I wasn't a Christian in high school, and I'm not proud of who I was in high school, but you know, I'd sit through an entire period and I ignored everything that the teacher said. I just, I did. I didn't care. Or it could be somebody important. Hey, we have a really important presentation today and, and, and it could be the most important person in the world, but just, you just ignore their 
present. I don't care what they're saying. I just don't care. I'm not interested. Think with me. How sad if a person comes to the house of God and the presence of God is in our midst and the voice of God by his spirit is seeking to speak to us as his people. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. And we're like rudely ignoring God's presence. That's sad. That's kind of dishonorable, isn't it, if you think about it? And so he says, this is why we should have that expectant heart, and we should come to hear mainly God speak to me, and the thing he cautions of in verse 2 and 3 is the danger instead of just being rash with our mouth and uttering hasty things before God in an irreverent way. Now, for sake of time, you're going to have to come back next time to hear what that's about, but... um, Again, I think he's implying there this reality that much better to hear what God has to say than to try and steal the show from God by saying more than we should. And I think one of the biggest areas we do, what he describes there in verse 2 and 3, is sometimes even in regards to just kind of not reverently even praying in the way that we speak to God and communicate to God, one of the biggest areas I think we can be very guilty of that is being rash with our mouth and letting our heart utter hasty things before the king of kings in the way that we pray sometimes. And I forget who it was, forgive me, I, as far as the, the quote of it itself, what you know, man of old uh, that I read, but, but he said, the first three minutes in a gathering of God's people, the first three minutes someone's praying, everybody's praying with them. The second three minutes that they continue to keep praying, everybody's praying for them to stop, to let the rest of us have a moment of audience with the king. And then if they pray three more minutes, everybody starts to pray against them. Please, God. When we communicate with God, it's not the amount of our words, it's the sincerity of our words. And one man I heard said one time before that there's times where people pray incessantly and they're just kind of hastily uttering words irreverently before God, and he said he's so prone to just say, just open up your eyes because you're preaching, you're not praying anymore. That's pretty convicting, right? Again, what a privilege that we can hear from God and we can communicate with God, but that we would have heartfelt, sincere, genuine communication reverently, thinking about what we'd say. If you had audience with the king, think about how very specific you would be with your words, with your requests. Again, praying earnestly, absolutely, but praying sincerely and very genuinely from our hearts. Well, why don't we stand together?